Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Never Split the Difference by Chrissy Voss, negotiating as if your life depended on it. We've done a bunch of negotiation books in the past, but this comes from a very different perspective. Some of the books we did, like Getting to Yes and Getting Past No, were from a, a rational academic sort of a standpoint. Uh, but Chris Voss, he comes from the real world of FBI hostage negotiation. He had to negotiate with terrorists, with gang leaders, with bank robbers, uh, with people holding hostages. And so he's trying to bring some of his, I guess, real world uh, emotional side of negotiation to some of the rational academic things that we've done in the past. So it's a good little uh, book to add to your negotiation repertoire. So this is what he's done. He's translated everything he learned in the down, dirty world of dealing with the drug dealers and gangsters and is applying it to the everyday negotiations that me and you have to deal with. If you want to knock off a couple hundred bucks off that $20,000 car, if you want that 10% raise, or if you want to just get your kids to bed by 9 p.m., the techniques from this book is what will help you uh, reach successful negotiations from your end. There's so many negotiations that we go through every single day and we probably don't even realize that it's a negotiation. But what Chris says, whether it is trying to get that client signed to that million-dollar contract or whether it is the small thing of just uh, asking a colleague to do something for you, these are all negotiations and Chris said that they all boil down to two simple functions. One is gathering information and two is influencing behavior. So every negotiation is simply just firstly finding out the information from the other side and then secondly influencing the negotiation in a way that gets the other person to do what you want them to do. I think one of the natural things when you frame something as negotiation, we've got this natural aversion against it. It feels kind of awkward and funny when you feel like you're stepping into something like that. But this is one of the first things we need to do is get over our aversion to negotiating. It does mean we need to play an emotional game that human society is really set up for in every situation like that. So Chris worked in the FBI for two decades, 15 of those years he was negotiating these hostage situations all over the world and as he was sort of moving out of the FBI and moving into the corporate world and the business world, he wanted to bring over his techniques that he'd learnt but he also thought there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff in business school learning about the business side of negotiations that he should learn. So he went uh, to a big famous business school and started doing these negotiation classes and he realized that they were really using old, outdated techniques. They were very much based on rational processes, a clear step-by-step, -step, this is how any negotiation should go. And they were ignoring a lot of the real-world, human, emotional side of the negotiations. So Chris was really able to come in with his real-world experience and pretty much slap up all of these uh, MBA guys in suits who think they're negotiation masters. Yeah, 100%. All the MBA negotiation masters, their Bible was getting to yes, which we've already reviewed on the podcast by William Urie and Roger Fisher. And it really is that. It's a linear process, four steps, and to get to a successful yes in a negotiation. The first step was separate the people from the positions. The second step was focus on interests, not positions. The third step was inventing options for mutual gain. And the fourth step is insisting on using objective criteria. So for the book written by William Murray and Roger Fisher getting to yes, that's basically a four-step linear process. The real world of negotiation isn't always like that. Yeah, at the time in the 1980s when this came out, it was revolutionary. It was the first of its kind. It was this first book that really broke down a clear, simple framework for negotiation. And it was a good starting point, but it really didn't dig deep enough into what a negotiation really needs to be. 
And the big error was that it was too rational. It was too much systematized. It was too much thinking of the, uh, I guess, the the rational system two side of the brain. If we if we bring that thinking fast and slow analogy, it's it's all about that slow thinking. People assuming that people are going to do exactly what's best for them, and uh, trying to understand that there's a there is a right answer and a wrong answer, and this is how we're going to get to that right answer. And I think why this book this book is very powerful if you read it in context with getting to yes getting past no, putting these three together, you've got a very good package that deals with the emotional brain then also the rational brain. One important part of a negotiation is getting comfortable, making the other side comfortable and then gathering information and, and extracting vital information from the opponent in your negotiation. So good negotiators going in, they know that they have to be ready for any kind of surprise. But the great negotiators aim to use their skills to reveal all those surprises beforehand, especially the ones that they already know going into negotiation exist. Experience has taught these great negotiators that the best way to prepare is to consider all the possible different scenarios that could pop up. Holding multiple hypotheses and thinking that there are different paths that this negotiation could go down is a far better strategy than predicting how it's going to go and expecting the path ahead of you only to be surprised later when something completely different pops up. So the goal at the very start of negotiation when you're going in, you want to be getting as much information from the other side as possible. So every little bit of information that they're going to give you is going to help you on your goal of getting the best possible outcome for yourself. And in any negotiation, when they're not talking, they're really just thinking about their own arguments. And when they're talking, they're making their own arguments. And this is what most people do when they negotiate. Both sides are just thinking about what they're about to say, then they say it. And the other side just thinks about what they're saying, then they say it. But for us right now, we want to be listening as much as we can. And it's all about the one-way flow of information you're caring about. It's like what they're giving you and what they're revealing in your direction. We've spoken about it a lot in the past. So most people are just, if they're not talking, they're just thinking about what they're going to say next. So in any negotiation, that's pretty much all they're doing. They're not really listening to what you have to say. They're just planning their next rebuttal. So if you can take a step away from that, if you can be the one who's actively engaged, who's actively listening, it's a way to, I guess, disarm your counterpart. It makes them feel safe. It makes them feel heard. It makes them feel understood because uh, most people go through life never really being heard, especially in negotiations like this. So in that word, safe's what it's all about. If you let them feel safe, they're going to talk, talk, talk more about what they want. And the first tactic we've got to let them talk, talk, talk and reveal information is in the way you use your voice. So the voice is a very powerful tool in any communication that you do with people. You can use it intentionally to reach into someone's brain and flip an emotional switch in any direction you really want. You can change them from being distrusting to trusting you can take their nervous energy and make them calm and in an instant, you can just make them flip in, the, in any direction you want. Most people don't consciously think about their voice and how they're using the voice and because they don't think about it consciously, they're probably using the wrong voice which will set off these emotional triggers in people's mind or pop up red flags. Chris says there's really only three tones you should ever use as a negotiator. One is a positive and playful voice. The second is the late night FM DJ voice. And the third, which should be very, very, very rarely used, is something direct and assertive. Anything other than that, you're probably likely to trigger off some, uh, some fear in people's brains and they'll start going way off from the, from the path that you want them to be on. Yeah, so Chris really likes the late night DJ 
voice. I really like that as well. I don't know if you've listened to Love Song Dedications by Richard Mercer. Mm. It's really specific in Australia. Mm. But um, I think there's a, the uh, late, great Casey Kasem was yeah. the equivalent in the US, long distance ah. dedications. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, he really had this voice right now and this goes out to the love Susie out there who's wants to marry her. You know, it was like a little bit Amazing. like I was, I'm not very... I didn't have <laughs> no. the, the actual words to go with the romance. I was wondering how long you practicing that because uh, that sounded pretty good. It was very calm. Imagine pulling that now in negotiation. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. The other side's got no other option than to chill out. They can't get, get roused up when you're just talking like that to them and... Probably going to get a little bit of roused, aren't they? <laughs> maybe that's not if that's the goal. <laughs> if that's the goal, then maybe it's one to use. But if you compare that to someone who's speaking fast, high pitched, a little bit agitated, uh, it's very off putting and it's very it puts a person on edge. If you can speak slower, if you can speak a little bit deeper, if you can speak with more calmness in your voice, then you're going to at least set the person at ease. Mm. Ease is the goal, so we want to do anything we can to radiate and make the feeling and the emotion that's in the room as warm, as comforting as possible. And the other time is that most of the time you should be using this positive, playful voice as well in that you shouldn't be taking it too seriously. You should be brushing everything off. A bit of laughter, a bit of uh, lightheartedness is going to go a long way in a negotiation. If you get knuckled down into something that's too serious, too aggressive, uh, people are going to put their walls up. Whereas if you're playful if you're enjoying yourself uh, it lets them relax a little bit more and enjoy themselves as well so the second tactic we've got in our arsenal is all about mirroring so i think normally when you hear mirroring it's you can do it in terms of your posture in terms of your tone of voice uh, in terms of just tapping your feet or in doing anything like that to do exactly what the other person's doing and they're just going to feel comfortable and just think all right he's one of us she's one of us and in doing that you're going to make the the situation much more warm and comforting but Chris goes another step further. He actually repeats exactly the words they're using and in doing that, they just keep revealing and revealing more information. Oh, they keep revealing more and more information, do they? Yeah, they keep revealing more information. <laughs> oh, shit, you got me. <laughs> that, was that, was lame. that was pretty lame, but uh, I thought I'd, I was trying to work out when, when when's he going to end here. But basically, Chris, he says like you can literally say the last three words that they say, you can uh, turn that back onto them. And if they've probably got an idea in their head, if you just prompt them with the last three words that they say with a bit of a, a raised inflection as if you're asking a question. They're probably going to go off on another ramble mm. and you're going to get more and more information about them. If you're asking, say, for a 10% raise and then the boss goes, upper management are having budget constraints and you might respond, upper management are responding with budget constraints mm. and they go, oh, yeah, they're doing budget constraints and blah, blah, blah and they're just going to keep revealing more and more information, keep repeating what they're saying and then you've got a smorgasbord of things you can work with. Yeah, one example here was uh, he was talking to a bank robber and uh, the bank robber, they'd been trapped inside and uh, once Chris got on the phone, the bank robber, they'd been trapped inside, they took a few hostages of people who worked at the bank and once Chris got on the phone, the guy was pretty pissed off because he said, uh, our getaway vehicle is not out the front, you guys chase them away and Chris just said, we chase, it, we chase them away and the guy went on to say, yeah, as soon as he saw the police cars, our getaway driver took off and so just by using this one mirroring where we repeated the last couple of words as a bit of a question, they actually found out all this additional information because they didn't even know that there was a getaway driver before. And now that they knew that there was a car that was out the front who was going to be their getaway driver, they were able to go out and look at the CCTV. They actually mm. ended up finding the getaway driver and finding his car. So it was just from this one piece of mirroring that he used, he was able to get so much more information that led to the eventual capture of the bank robber. 
Yeah, I really like this, playing a little bit with the emotional brain. And he says mirroring, it's going to be very awkward when you first start using it. Uh, I haven't really found myself in a situation, but I might give it another crack at it. But I think it will be very, very awkward when you do it. But it's going to be something very, it's going to be a very important tool in your toolkit in your future negotiations. Yeah, and one important thing he says here is probably use your, your late night FM DJ voice. You drop your mirror in and then the important part is silence. Uh, as you say, it could be a bit awkward at first, but you've got to leave at least that four seconds of silence to allow that mirror to work the magic and uh, they're going to be feeling the same discomfort mm-hmm. as you do so they want to feel that, feel that silence so they're probably going to then start talking again. Yeah, it's a big component throughout the book. It's that, that silence and let that awkwardness fill in and then if you're a little bit stronger when that awkwardness ramps up <laughs> and gets extremely awkward, let the other side cave in first and let it, let it go. Okay, another item for your toolbox is using tactical empathy. He's quite Machiavellian, old Chris Voss here, isn't he? Man, it's absolutely vital in negotiations. It is. But intense negotiation situations, the traditional advice has always been go out there, keep your poker face, mm. don't get too roused up, try and avoid emotions at all kind of costs. Getting to yes talks about separating the person from the problem. But what happens if the problem is the emotion? And emotions are really one of the things that derail communication. They're going to be a real thing when it comes to negotiating. And once people get upset at one another, all the rational things go out the window and we're in the territory of Chris, which is all the emotional side of the brain. If we're coming into a negotiation and if we think we should be business-like, if we think we should be stoic and very rational and keep our poker face on, we're going to miss a large chunk of it. If the other person on the other side of the table has some kind of strong emotion and you're just there with your poker face on, they're just going to feel like they're not heard at all. They're going to feel like you haven't understood them. There's no possible way to move forward from there. Uh, rather than you're, if you're going to try and push on forward, they're going to be stuck in that same spot because their emotion is dragging them back. So the goal here is to make sure that the other party, they know that you understand exactly where they're coming from. And this is what he means by tactical empathy. What's the best way to let the other group or the other party understand that you, you know what they're on about? And so the way we really show this, this tactical empathy, is that we label exactly what they're feeling. So the the technique here for this tactical empathy, so that we can show the other side that they know, that we know, that we understand them. I think there's too many layers there, but anyway, what we're doing is we're labeling it. So by labeling something, by calling it out explicitly, we're showing them that we truly understand them. So yeah, don't put, just put yourself in their shoes, label their exact emotion. And another thing was going to be a little bit awkward, I think, when you first mm. start trying to do it. For example, like say in a bit of the preamble before you get in the negotiation, you ask them, how's the family? And then the corners of their mouth like turn up and they say, oh, it's, it's great. And it's not convincing <laughs> great at all, right? You understand there's something just creeping underneath them and their voice goes flat you actually get to label exactly what you think their emotion is deep down. You might say, oh, yeah, it seems like you're having a lot of trouble at home or it seems like your, your relationship isn't going too well. Don't be afraid of getting deep and labeling exactly what their emotion might be. Yeah, I'd probably, uh, it's probably a little bit early for that or talking too much personal stuff. But maybe a, uh, in, the, in, in the negotiation, if they say, let's use the example you said before, how the question about, you know, can I get a raise? And they said that the the higher-up managers are pushing back on budget constraints. Maybe you can say, it seems like you've got a lot of frustration there in dealing with the higher-ups. So by calling out that, 
Yeah, so by, they'd be feeling a lot of frustration. They probably want to grow the team. They probably want to move forward. They probably want to reward their best employees. But if the manager above them is saying no way, then there's going to be some frustration there. So if you can say it seems like there's some frustration there, then that's uh, labeling their exact situation. It should, that's that tactical empathy. So in human psychology, people's emotions have two levels. Their presenting behavior is the surface part and beneath that's the underlying feeling, which is the motivating behavior. And that's one we're trying to get to is the underlying feeling. So for that manager that is presenting the front, or it's the manager and they're passing the buck off them. But the underlying feeling is that frustration mm. and we get to label and acknowledge that. That tactical empathy really gets you even closer to their side. So we spoke earlier about the mirror, you know, building that rapport with someone and reflecting back to them with their specific words. This is just a complete another layer deeper where you're not just reflecting back the words, but you're reflecting back their truer underlying feelings. The next piece of negotiation advice from Chris Voss is very, very counterintuitive for any negotiation advice you've ever been given your whole entire life and that is beware yes and master no. So no is a very good thing in Chris's world. Most classic negotiation courses talk about the yes ladder, about building up a series of yeses. The more people say yes, the more they get used to saying yes. So when you give them the big pitch at the end, they're going to say yes. Uh, But Chris says that's the exact opposite. Uh, Yes often doesn't mean yes. There are many different types of yes. Sometimes saying yes is just a way to get you to stop talking. But no, that's, uh, that reveals some real important stuff for a negotiation. So this no is the thing that actually starts in the negotiation. Yeah, most people think no is the end. Most people think if you give your offer and then they say no, that's it, it's game over. But Chris says no, that's just the beginning. It is kind of liberating because uh, yeah. if you if the other school of thought, you're thinking no, oh shit, I've failed already. Game over. In Chris as well, right? No, like, you just get in your hands and you start rubbing together yeah. and it's game on really. <laughs> One of Chris's biggest negotiations in his life was how he entered the FBI crisis negotiation team. At the very start, he actually had no credentials and no background in anything that will give him that kind of job. And they asked him, Chris, have you got any degree in psychology, sociology, anything related? And Chris said, no, sorry. And they replied, it looks like you've answered your question, now go away. Now at this point, most people would just go away, but Chris, he understands that no is actually an opportunity. And he stayed around, he asked, go away, really? Obviously repeating and mirroring what they said. And then he let the awkward pause go there, ramp up. And then all of a sudden, they released another big important piece of information on how he could do it. And they said, okay, there is one way you can do it. Go and volunteer for the suicide hotline. So after that series of no and that awkward moment, then Chris all of a sudden won the the negotiation because he had a road to become part of that team. For most people, no provides a sense of comfort, a sense of protection. It gives them control back. Uh, if people, if you're asking obvious questions where the answer is yes, it makes people feel trapped. People know some of these techniques that the telemarketers are using where you're building up that uh, ladder of yeses. People just know there's some dodgy shit about to come around the corner. So yes, saying yes is actually very uncomfortable for people. Being able to say no to something gives them a hell of a lot more comfort. It means that they get to maintain the status quo. They don't have to make any change and it means that they wrestle control back of this situation. And this is the paradoxical thing. It's no is very good for them to say because it lets the other party feel like they've got the sense of control. So the feeling of autonomy, it's a universal need that we all have and this is what you're gifting them. If you don't give them control and it feels like you're the one in control and then you're actually not going to go anywhere. I was just thinking... uh 
this is a bit on the fly, so it's always a risk. But if Chris, uh, the other way, rather than asking them how can he get into this FBI crisis negotiation team, maybe he went in there and said, are you looking for someone who's very confident? And then they're going to say, yes, of course. And then if they say, oh, oh are, you, are you looking for someone who's been uh, on the streets, who's, who has real conversations with real people, they're going to say yes. So he's like, that's building them up to the point where they're almost feeling trapped into saying, yes, you can come and join the team. But instead, he's asked them this question where the answer was no, they've got control, they don't have to make any decisions, the status quo is wrestled. And then they've said no, he says, okay, well, there must be something I can do. And from that point, they've got the full control. They've said no, and they can choose whatever comes next. So anything that they recommend next is going to be something that's comfortable to them. Yeah, he says you're not going to logically convince them that they're in control. So again, we're talking about this irrational, emotional Mm. brain, and this is the trick to get them. So you want to ask the questions that is going to arouse a no from them. So you might ask, what about this doesn't work for you as opposed to the other way around? What, What about this does work? Or also... What would you need to make it work? So I think the takeaway with this is if your biggest fear is no, which might be communicated by your big Harvard MBA types, then you're really a hostage to the word no and you're kind of handcuffed only to the word yes. But now I guess with this information, when no comes, you've got some wiggle room and you understand that it can actually be something that works in your favor. If you're coming in with the view that negotiation is this linear formula X plus Y equals Z, you're going to miss all of the irrational blind spots, all the hidden needs, all those undeveloped notions, anything hiding beneath the surface. Once you can shift your perspective and recognize that there is this entire world below the surface of the spoken, all these unspoken needs, all these thoughts, you've really opened yourself to a much bigger and more, impo- and more important part of the negotiation universe. One emotional blind spot is all about the use and risks of deadlines, what people might throw on you, but it's something that you could use on the other person as well. So you need to find a way to make time your ally. Time is one of the most crucial variables in any negotiation. The simple passing of time and its sharper cousin, the deadline, are the screw that pressures every deal to the conclusion. So this is something we can use every time. Mm. Yeah, Chris says that a lot of deadlines... Uh, he reckons they're not really deadlines. If the other side really, really wants something and they say you, may, you need to decide by, by 12 p.m. today, he says often if they really want it, it's not really a hard and fast deadline. They're probably using this as a tactic against you to make you feel trapped, to make you feel the pressures of scarcity, the pressures of time and this perceived deadline in your mind is going to make you act irrationally. So you need to realize the power that deadlines can have over you and realize the power that you can then wield over other people by using these. Another blind spot is the use of the most powerful word in negotiation, the most powerful F word around there. It's not the four-letter F word. The four-letter F, F word. It's not the F bomb. It's fair, F-A-I-R. This is super powerful in the way that you use it. If someone gives you a ridiculous offer, if you say to them, how is that a fair offer? then that's really going to put it back on them because in any negotiation, people want to at least feel the perception that they're being fair, that both sides are getting a win-win. If you don't say to them, hey, this is not fair, but if you ask them, how is this a fair offer, it puts it back on them to rationalize or to explain why it's fair. There might be a bit of fairness, bad admitting. They might give you an offer and say, oh, we've given you a fair offer and then you might throw it back to them and uh, exclaim fair with a big question mark and 
use the word fair. It's a very powerful weapon mm-hmm. to, to be pulling out of the arsenal. Yeah, if they know that, if they say, oh, this is a very fair offer, they know the power of fair. So if you can question their notion of fair as well, it or works even back better, them. use the question fair and then use that awkward pause mm. and let the awkwardness ramp up and let them crumble. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, mate. Tell us your uh, recent example of a of a of a negotiation you went through. You tried to record it, yeah, but the, the sound quality was shit house. Yeah, I tried to. I, re, I went through the notes of this book and everything, and I got very well prepared because <laughs> I was paying uh, seventy bucks a night in Lombok, very high price for what you you get around there. And so basically, top dollar, but the air conditioner didn't work. So I wanted to go and negotiate a new room price based on what I've been staying. Is seventy dollars per night fair for a room that doesn't have air conditioning and then i did the long pause and i had all these things ready to go after that <laughs> but mate that one weapon it actually worked i got a half price for my whole stay there i couldn't even believe it too good you didn't even need the uh the mirroring the tactical empathy i was ready though i had a recording anyway. so yeah. we're not going to put it up because it's a quite an awkward uh <laughs> awkward solution in the end uh, but that's good using that fairness another big one is anchoring expectations this is another way you can bend people's uh, realities and emotions. Mate, that just triggered the brain. I actually did this as well. Oh, nice. Exact same thing. So when I went up to him to negotiate, I said, hey, you're going to think I am the worst customer you've mm-hmm. ever had at this place and I'm the biggest pain in the ass and I'm just an upper-class Westerner with first world problems. I did yeah. that to anchor their expectations for me to say something ridiculous. Yeah. Followed that up with a fair word and that was it, mate. I, yeah. I cleaned them up. <laughs> <laughs> Too good. No win-win, just win-lose, baby. <laughs> Don't grow that pie, mate. Just slice it up in your favor. That's it. <laughs> the, uh, Chris talks about this a lot and specifically to do with things like uh, airports or hotels that people are used to having horrible customers come up and treat them like shit. So if you say uh, something like that, if you say, oh, you're just going to think that I'm uh, you know, some completely entitled rich guy, something like that, or if you, if you go up to them and say, this is going to be the worst experience you've had all day, they're expecting some bad shit because they've seen some bad shit. They've seen you know, people bringing hookers into the room. They've seen mm. people chopping up bodies in the room. They've seen, uh, they've seen all sorts of weird shit. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so if you say this is going to be the worst experience you've ever had in this hotel and then you just ask for an upgrade to a nicer room, yeah. then they're, they think, they're going to think they got off pretty lightly. Yeah, it's all about anchoring their expectations and whatever you bring in next, it's going to be improvement upon that anchor. Mate, I've seen that some of the best pitches I've ever seen for selling products is use this to a great extent. Uh, someone you like who used to love is uh, Jerry Roberts. He used to mm. sell people on becoming a self-published author. Mm. And for the two-day workshop, he kept anchoring, anchoring your expectations like the cost is going to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he'd stop and say, oh, yeah, everyone's going to have a heart attack when they hear the price and all that. And the whole time you're thinking, shit, what's this price going to be he's going to do in his final pitch? You're thinking in the hundreds of thousands of dollars – in the end, it's 30 or 40 grand, which once you leave the seminar, you realize, yeah. fuck, that's, <laughs> that's a ridiculous a price in itself. But because the, over the two days, he anchors you through the stratosphere, mm. he ended up getting about 15 to 20 people buying his product at 40 grand a pop. So he made 600 grand worth of sales in that one seminar mm. by using this ridiculous anchor rule. Amazing pitch. It's worth going just to see the, the great man in action. How does he get these people to buy such a high price product? Uh, another big thing Chris talks about in negotiation is you should almost always let the other person go first. Say if you're negotiating for a salary, 
then you let the other person set the first number because you know normally in a negotiation you'll set something high they'll go lower and then you split the difference mm-hmm. halfway in between and that the first thing that go out is that anchor so obviously in this book when not, the book is never split the difference you should be trying to get exactly what you want you let the other person go first because they're going to set that anchor and you can only go up from there. Mm. If you if you come in with a first offer and it's below what they were going to say, you've completely wasted a massive opportunity to go higher. Absolutely. This is exactly what happened in my second job. And when I was leaving that job, this is what my boss told me. He, he said to me my when we first had that meeting and the what I threw out, for me, it was a 30% pay rise and what mm. I had then. So, I was thinking, this 30% is sick, but it was actually lower than his lowest range that he had. <laughs> so that was a quick yes from him. So, it was a quick <laughs> yes, all right? So, I left five five grand on the table yeah. by just not using this one tactic. And that's what Chris says, actually. Uh, I remember the, one of the worst things in negotiation is a quick yes. If you give an offer <laughs> and the person gives a quick yes, you've completely stuffed up somewhere along the line. So, he says, let them go first. Uh, and uh, if they can set something, you can go up from there. The other thing he says is that if a lot of people are starting to catch on to this as well, I know Ramit said he pumps this a lot, Chris pumps this a lot, that they always say that you should always let the other person go first. Mm. So if you're dealing with someone who's well-versed in this stuff and they try to wrestle it back and force you to go first, he says don't just give them a number. He says you should give them some kind of objective range. He says rather than you know what do you want from this and you say 125K is your starting offer, you might say instead... Well, at top companies like ABC Corporation, the general range for someone at this level of experience with this level of uh, qualifications is typically somewhere between 130K to 170K. Mm. So that's what you're doing at first. And then the other thing that you've got in your arsenal, if you have to go first, is doing that, but also having it as an anchor. So I think going as a, an extremely high price is something that you can do as your, your first hit. And then from there, you're going to anchor from that high level downwards rather than anchoring from their level low upwards. Mm, 100%. Okay, so that's never split the difference. It covers in a very good detail the emotional and irrational side of the brain when it comes to negotiation. I recommend people listening, go back and listen to Getting to Yes and Getting Past No. I think all three of those episodes and those three of the books will make you an extremely powerful negotiator. I'm 100% sure of that. But what we covered in this episode is some of the things you should be doing is extracting as much information as possible from the other side by making them feel comfortable. You can do that by using the voice, such as the FM DJ voice. You can mirror (laughs) them. Another thing you can be doing is using tactical empathy. So with that, you're labeling their emotions so the other side knows that you've been listening and you understand who they are and what they're actually saying. So that's the first part of it. That's the gathering information aspect of it. And then the influencing behavior aspect of it, that's when you bring in the no. You let them feel comfortable. You let them feel as though they're in control by letting them say no, not being afraid of somebody saying no and realizing that no is not the end of a negotiation. It's just the beginning. And then as we're moving into more behavior influence stuff, we're bending their emotions. We're using deadlines tactically to our advantage we're understanding the power of the word fair and we're using anchors in our favor as well 